Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this time in your word, this time in fellowship and community, and this time for you to speak to us. You knew each one of us would be here tonight. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have open hearts, open ears, ready to receive and listen to your voice. Help us to be good hearers and better doers. Help us love Jesus deeply. Help us to respond and follow you faithfully, Lord. And we ask that you bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Bless our reading of the word and allow your Holy Spirit to guide us in our conversation. We pray for the gifts of wisdom and knowledge to be able to interpret these things well. And we pray that this time would be edifying and encouraging for all of us, challenging, and ultimately would lead us closer to you and deeper in relationship with you. We pray all this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I said, we're in Luke chapter 15. This is called uh, the heart of the gospel of Luke. It is also often called the gospel of the gospel. Um, It is the kind of central message. These parables kind of convey the central gospel message of the good news of what Jesus came to do and God's love for us. And so these three parables that we are going to read, uh, again, very familiar. Try and delete any previous image you have of them in your mind. And let's just see how they unfold as we read through this the first time. This is Jesus talking to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them he addressed this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he does find it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy. And upon his arrival home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or what woman, having 10 coins and losing one, would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it. And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I lost. In just the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he found himself in dire need. 
So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, quickly bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the oldest son had been out in the field, and on his way back as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry. And when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, look, all these years I served you and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. He said to him, my son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have three very powerful stories here, uh, very powerful parables. These are allegories that Jesus uses in teaching of commonplace items, terms, or stories that existed to convey some type of teaching. And they escalate. You know, the loss in the first one is, you know, a loss of one out of 100, and then one out of 10, and then one out of two sons. It gets higher and higher and higher. And yet, the love of God persists and gets deeper and more compassionate. And keep in mind, this is almost directly after our gospel from last week, where Jesus is saying, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So remember, we talked about how we need to respond in total commitment to the Lord. And right after that, Jesus shares these stories to talk about how God has total commitment to us, total love of us. Okay, so that's generally what is happening in this passage. Now, I'm going to read it again. I know it's longer, but we always read this twice so that the second time you can listen more closely and see if any particular word or phrase stands out to you or strikes you, or it could be a detail. It could be something in the picture you imagined that you never noticed before. Whatever it is, Hold on to that because we believe that is how the Holy Spirit, that is how God is trying to speak to you, okay? Something that you uniquely notice. So try and empty your mind of everything else but the words as you hear them. And when a word or a phrase sparks something in your mind, you know, an un unconscious, unprovoked thought, a stream of, of different memories or things, pay attention to those and begin to ask, why did this stand out to me? What might the Lord be trying to say to me or what might he be compelling me to do? 
Okay, so our second final time through, Luke 15. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus, but the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them he addressed this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he does find it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy. And upon his arrival home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or what woman, having 10 coins and losing one, would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I lost. In just the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A man had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country, where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens, who sent him to his farm to tend of the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here am I dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father ordered his servants quickly, Bring the finest robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field, and on his way back, he neared the house. As he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter his, the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. He said to him, My son, you are with, here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
So take a few moments to look back over that passage of several parables, see what things stood out to you, reflect on those for a moment. And when you feel so inclined, go ahead and share those at the table that you're at uh, if you feel comfortable doing so. And we'll spend about five or 10 minutes doing that. And then we'll bring it back together for the larger group. If you're watching this or listening to it, you can leave those questions in, com in the comments. But for those of us here, take about the next five or 10 minutes. These are very full and rich parables. So I know we could keep keep chatting, but love to hear it back in the larger group. Um, before we get into some questions and comments, I think it'd be helpful to provide some general context of, of the, the kind of why these particular um, parables are offered. And uh, the first is the parable of the lost sheep. And uh, the interesting thing about this, like we know that Jesus says later in John 10, like, I am the good shepherd. You know, I, I know my sheep and they know me. Like he, he kind of champions that. But a shepherd was not like a desirable example. Okay, shepherds constantly were taking care of their sheep. Sheep are dirty. They're out in the wilderness. Shepherds usually don't have the time, wouldn't have the time to make the different temple offerings to keep holy the Sabbath as they were supposed to. They were constantly working and doing these things. And the fact that there are a hundred sheep is a lot. Like normally one family, if they were lucky, would have maybe five to 10 animals, you know, to help sustain them. If they had to go do a pilgrimage feast or if they had to entertain a large group of people, you know, they could afford to kind of, you know, have a meal or something like that. But meat was not a regular part of the diet. So this was, this was not an abundance for a lot of people. So for this many sheep, there may have been several shepherds. So it maybe would have been okay for one to go off. Um, but Jesus is addressing this to the tax or to the, the Pharisees and the scribes. And these are people who've been entrusted with responsibilities to care for and to instruct all of the Jewish people in the way of the Lord, in the way of the law. And so they've been given, you know, sheep or coins or sons. They've been given these things that they are to uh, take care of, to be good stewards of. And he's addressing them and saying, you're not doing this. You know, you're letting these sheep, these sheep go off lost because, you know, the question, which one of you would not leave 99 of your sheep in the desert and go off after the one? I'd be like, no shepherd would do that. That's ridiculous. Like, why would you, some dumb sheep goes off into the, like the wilderness. I'm not going to leave my 99 good sheep to get ravaged by wolves in the desert just to go find that sheep. You know, like, I don't, who cares? Like, that would be my mentality. And I think that's probably what they thought too, which shows like the radical love and generosity of God. Okay, and then we move to the parable of the 10 coins. Um, a lot of scholars think that these aren't just ordinary coins. Um, the word that's used here is drachma. It's a Greek silver coin, similar to the denarii, the Roman denarii, which was uh, equivalent to one day's wage. Um, so if you think about how much you earn in one day, I mean, it's not a huge amount to learn, but it's a significant, uh, huge amount to lose, but it's a significant amount to lose. You'd probably look for it. Um, the floors at this time in homes were dirt. And so I'm just imagining this woman sweeping dirt. For some reason, I just think that's funny and ironic, like just sweeping dirt around. You know, you can't really clean your dirt floor, but she's looking for this coin. But a lot of people think that this is part of a typical headdress that was wear, worn by married women. Married women, there was a tradition where they would take 10 silver coins and they would string them on a silver chain and they would wear it um, almost as part of their veil so they can indicate to everyone that they were married. And so this would have been very um, emotionally significant not to just lose this. This uh, tradition still exists in some capacity. If you've ever been to a Mexican wedding and they exchange adas, the coins, uh, I think it's 10 that they exchange, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I'm getting thumbs up, good. Uh, and it goes back to a lot of historical traditions like this. 
Okay, so it's a sign, and, and it represents also that like our finances, um, everything that we earn is coming together. I'm giving you all that I have, all of my earthly possessions and vice versa. There's a lot of beautiful symbolism there. But this would have been, had a lot of like romantic, relational meaning for this woman. It wouldn't just been a, an insignificant coin. And then the parable of the two sons. This parable was actually a very common parable. Uh, many rabbis had a story that began, a man had two sons. And this was a common story. And they all told the same parable until about verse 16, when the, the, the young, younger son comes home. And the typical parable that was told by rabbis would end like this. The son would come over the, the, the road. He would encounter his father. And he would say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer um, worthy to be called your son. And the father said, you're right. You're no longer worthy to be called my son. I will not even treat you as one of my hired workers. And he would banish him outside of his home, outside of the city. He would just tell him to, to go away. Excuse me, tell him to go away. Because he had squandered his inheritance. It was a story about a son getting what he deserved because he disobeyed the Torah law. This goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And it says um, in verse 18, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who would not listen to his father or mother and will not listen to them even though they discipline, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders at the gate of his home city, where they shall say to the elders of the city, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He won't listen to us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all his fellow citizens shall stone him to death. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst. So imagine being an audience who hears this. A man had two sons like, oh, we've heard this one before. And this is probably when the Pharisees and scribes are like, all right, here's when the vengeance is coming, like the righteousness. We know this one. We know where Jesus is going. And then all of a sudden, the father runs out to greet the son, lavishly pours love upon him, welcomes him back into the family. Imagine that surprise twist ending to all the people who were there and how shocking that would be to the Pharisees and the scribes and how refreshing that would be to people like tax collectors, prostitutes and sinners who were listening, who had been ostracized and oppressed their entire life because they didn't feel like they were good enough to be part of the religious community. So I think that context for those three parables is very important as we discuss this. So sorry to kind of take a little time away from questions, but with that being said, that might answer some of yours. Are there any other comments, things that stood out to you or questions that you have about these readings? Daniel. Uh, to ask you why the son who was under the jurisdiction of the father was envious of the son that was lost this whole time. Like, he was envious over a being given a bag of half, and it's just like, I don't understand why that son had a good father who was under the grace of his father that whole time. Mm -hmm. He just said, why wouldn't you give me a bag of half? But he, would, he literally had everything that his father would be giving. Why would he be jealous of a lost person that, who lost his way? Yeah. So I'm just confused. Yeah, well, I mean, in modern terms, I mean, haven't we all maybe seen someone who gets something we think they don't deserve or they haven't earned? And we think, like, I've worked harder than that person. Like, I deserve some recognition. Like, why is that person suddenly getting all of this? You know, why is that person suddenly getting all this recognition? They did all of this messed up stuff. You know, and I think so the elder brother, I think a lot of times people who um, are practicing their faith or have been raised in the faith for a long time often identify with the elder brother in some capacity. Uh, and there's a great book. If anyone ever asks me, what's a spiritual book that you recommend? My number one go-to book that I've gifted to people more than any other book is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. 
I think I heard my wife talking about it earlier. Yeah, um, it's an amazing book. It's very small. We, uh, Henry Nouwen was a, a Catholic priest and theologian, and he had the opportunity to sit and meditate uh, in front of the portrait of the return of the prodigal son by Rembrandt, and we have a giant copy of it in the chapel, uh, and it's on the cover of the book. And he goes through each of the characters in this story and how we are all the younger son. We all have at some point in our life been in a, a time of sin, and we go through cycles of this where we felt we weren't worthy, we were distant from God, we were looking for the things of this earth, we were looking for pleasures, and you know, we weren't doing the things that God would, would want us to do. And at some point, hopefully, we have had or will have this recognition or this opportunity to receive an encounter with God where he shows us that even though we've done all of these things, he still loves us. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forsaken us. But then he moves and he says, we're also all the elder brother. We have these moments of jealousy and entitlement and things like that where we're wondering, why is God doing these things for other people and not for me? You know, I'm praying for all of this stuff. I'm a good person, and yet my life is in shambles, and this person who's a big, terrible sinner, everything's going great for them right now. You know, that's kind of like the entitlement of the elder brother. But then he moves and says, we're all also the father. We're all also the father because we are meant to be conduits of God's love to other people, to welcome them home, to have compassion on them. It reminds me of the words of Dorothy Day where she says, I only love God as much as the person I love the least. I only love God as much as the person I love the least. Or you could put it this way, for a Christian, no person is your enemy. There is an enemy. He's the devil. He's Satan. But no person is your enemy. That's kind of the loving heart of God that we're meant to embody when we stand in the position of father or parent. And so he goes through, and it's very beautifully written, very easy to read. It's not very heady theological. It's just very, just like right to your heart kind of writing. So I highly recommend it. But the elder brother, getting back to your comment, I think that's why he has a sense of entitlement. But recognize he doesn't really quote the fact that he's his son. He says, I've worked for you. You know, both of these sons are, are, are dealing with, you know, they are sons of the father, but they're treating themselves as workers or as slaves to the father. Right? One of them wants to come back and just be a hired worker. One of them is quoting the fact that I've done all of this work for you. And as Catholics or as Christians, we can sometimes feel like, God, I've done, like, I've done all of this good stuff. Shouldn't I be getting brownie points? You know, shouldn't I be uh, you know, having more prosperity in my life? And that's a very wrong and confusing way to read the gospel. If you think like following God is going to make everything in your life uh, you know, fine and all your problems go away, well, if there are certain problems associated with sin, then yeah. If you sin less, your life's going to be better if those sins are destroying your life. But it doesn't mean that persecution and suffering won't happen. But your perspective within it and your knowledge of the fact that God is with you in the midst of it can change and transform that. But when we get so laser focused, like the elder brother is on, look at all the stuff I'm doing. I'm going to mass. I'm praying my rosary. I'm getting to confession. I'm doing very holy things. I'm putting my envelope in the basket. I'm a super holy person. I wear my tie to mass. Why aren't you giving me all the things that I want, God? That is a very disjointed way to view God. God is not Santa Claus. He's not an ATM. We don't just put in our PIN number and we get blessings. That's not how it works. It's a relationship. You know, same thing with a marriage. You know, I don't wake up, go to work, come home, you know, like, oh, great, honey, I made some money today. And she comes home, oh, great, we made some money today. High five, we're married and we're just going to keep loving each other and we don't have to have a conversation and we don't have to worry about this relationship because we're doing the things we're supposed to do. Hooray. No, that's not how a healthy relationship works. 
So the same is true, you know, for us. So the elder brother is demoting himself in the same way, similar way that the younger son did, but not squandering his inheritance. In, in, in some other sense, he's squandering the love of God by assuming he can earn it. Yeah, Jillian. What do you think the reason was that the younger son came back? Was it because he was just hungry and he was like, there's food at the house, I can do that? Or was he like, I feel bad, I've had a crappy life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It doesn't sound like he repents, right? He's not like, I, I did something wrong. He's just like, I'm hungry. <laughs> There's food at home. <laughs> you know, every, every college student can relate to this, right? You know, like, it doesn't matter how I've wasted mom and dad's money. There's the Doritos in the, in the house, you know? So, yeah, it's interesting. Like, it, we don't really know if he repents. This phrase that he says, I shall get up and go to my father... Uh, the word for get up is anastasis. It's the same word that's used for resurrection when Jesus rises from the dead. And the word for, um, for go, um, or I'm sorry, that's the word for go. The word for get up can also mean die. It's another way to translate that Greek word. So another way to translate that, that sentence is, I shall die and rise to my father. So in the original Greek, there can be this sense of like, all right, I have done something I should not have done. And I'm going to go try and do something new and be reconciled with my father. But this, the, the younger son just seems kind of impetuous to me. He's just like, he goes to his father. He says, give me the share of your inheritance that should come to me. He's the younger son. So he doesn't really get that much. Okay, the older son, this is in Deuteronomy 21. It tells you, you know, how this is broken down. But the older son gets a double share. And then every son after that gets, you know, another percentage that's evenly divided. So if you have... Nine sons, the first son gets two shares, so he gets 20%, and then all the other sons get 10%, okay? So you kind of, however many sons you have, you add one, and then you divide it evenly, and you just give your, your first son two portions, okay? So two sons, they both be getting a pretty penny. The, the first son would get two-thirds of his father's estate. The younger son would get one-third, uh, and that includes land. Land was part of the promise of God to Abraham, like your identity, fruitfulness, your livelihood was attached to the land. Giving up your land or selling it for money would have been seen as like unheard of, such a shameful thing to do to bring dishonor to your family. But to go to your father while your father's still alive and say, give me your share of your inheritance is telling your father, look, I wish you were dead. So give me what should come to me when you die. There was in some rabbinical literature, they say that uh, a father could... Uh, before his death, give a share of his inheritance to one of his sons, but the expectation was that the son would remain at home to care for the father until he died. So this is like unheard of, so disrespectful, so shameful. In fact, it, it points to something in Proverbs, this is Proverbs 29.3, uh, whoever loves wisdom gives joy to his father, but whoever consorts with harlots squanders his wealth. And this is all through Proverbs, the responsibility of a child to his parents and what it means to be wise or what it means to be foolish. And so this son embodies like the foolish child, goes off, spends all of this, sells this land, this family land that dates back to like the Jewish heritage of them coming into the promised land. And then he ends up with the swine who are unclean. You know, so he's ritually impure. He's totally destitute. He's totally disconnected himself from his family. And then he, it says in here, he longed to eat of the pods, which the swine ate from, but nobody gave him any. Like, just a sense of, like, well, nobody's going to give me any. 
You're like, well, could you ask? Could you like do something? You know, it's just, even that 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 line is what bothers me the most. I'm like, dude, really? Could you just ask for some swine food? Like, just suck it up, okay? You made some mistakes. He won't even do that. And then he just realizes, oh, dad's got food at home, so I'll go back. And so I don't really know which it is. But I think the important thing to interpret from it is no matter which it is, God still lavishly loves in return. So even if we offer God like our little repentance, you know, like, I guess, sure, Lord, I guess it's easier if I follow you. So I guess I'll start doing that. God can love you in that and he can do something with that. You know, I say like God can work in a cardboard box, like whatever you give him, God will do something with it, do something amazing with it. Or total repentance, obviously he can work even more through. So it could be either. But I do think this encounter with his father at the end, that was what radically would have changed him. Because no one responds that way, especially in Jewish culture. You know, like the, the code of Hammurabi, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's also in the Old Testament. Like it was very um, harsh. And yes, there were a lot of things in the Old Testament law that were very loving and that were radically different from all the other nations around them, but it was still a very ancient time of like very black and white type of laws and rules. And this law of love that was in the old law, it didn't seep into everything like it was supposed to, which is why what Jesus did is so radically different from what the practice was. So this, this encounter with the Father would have totally, totally changed him. But whether or not he fully repented before that, who knows? Bruce? In verses 24 and 32, the Father seems to know and say what the culture did at that time, as you pointed out. They take him out and stone him. Mm -hmm. He's dead. That's what he, that's what he deserves, yeah. to be dead. But my love for him changes all of that. And now he's got life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what Christ does for us. Yeah. When he dies on the cross, we were headed for death. And instead we get life. Yeah. That's a pretty good change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Romans chapter 6, uh, or no, chapter 3. Is it chapter 6? Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your transgressions. Like St. Augustine believed that like when we're born... We have a one-way train ticket in our hand to hell because just we're born in a state of sin. Sin exists, and that's why we need Jesus, and that's how radically transformative it is that Jesus died for us, even though we weren't worthy of it. Like that lavish love, even though no matter what we do. I love the image in the, the, the parable of the lost sheep where he sets the sheep on his shoulders. Maybe you've seen that famous um, artwork of Jesus, the good shepherd, with the sheep around his shoulders. What I love about that is what is the next time we see Jesus putting something on his shoulders? The cross. Carrying us, the sins of his lost sheep, on his very back. Foreshadowing what he's going to do for us. Already showing us, this is how much God loves you, but then I'm going, I'm on my way to Jerusalem right now to prove this to you. So that when you remember this story and you see that image of the shepherd with the lost sheep on his shoulders, and then you see me bloodied with this splintered piece of wood connecting to the exposed tissue in my back from all the scourging, you will remember God's love for you. These people who walked with him, that would have been such, I think, a visceral image. 
as they walked with him, calling back to all of these things that he said and taught so much of them here. But yes, he was dead. Now he has life. And that's all of us. We're dead in our sin. But we have life through Jesus Christ. Rick? I like the contrast of the two groups in the beginning. The sinners, mm-hmm. are, are, but they're drawing close to Jesus and they can hear him. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do. It's just like at the end of in the, in the third story where he finally dies and resurrects and comes back. You know, So that's a necessary step when you're in sin mm-hmm. to draw close to Jesus. That's the only way you're going to hear him. Mm-hmm. And then the other group, they were busy talking. And because of that, they couldn't hear Jesus at all. Yeah. And I think, too, that I, I see myself in that. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, I'm too busy with my own life and talking, and I, I can't hear anything yeah. that's being said to me. So I really like I really like the image of that. And then my favorite part is on the other side of forgiveness is a party. And mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing. Like, we're, we're supposed to be able to enjoy life. Yeah. And that, that doesn't mean materially enjoy it. But I think uh, it's easy to focus so much on the, you know, this, this the, you know, I guess the difficulties of living faith. Yeah. But it's so important to remember that we're, we're meant to be created to enjoy everything mm. in this life. Even, and most importantly, the joy within our own mind and heart. So yeah. I think that's a good image to, you know, the other side of, of, uh, of, of bringing yourself finally mm-hmm. is the party that's going to start. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really well embodied in the second parable. Because you can imagine, like I said, the diadem, like imagine a woman losing her wedding ring or engagement ring, and then finally finding it, like, oh my gosh, my wedding ring costs $75. This is my third one. Okay. I have all the rest. I just lost them for too long until I found them again, then I had to go buy another one. That's Erica's first and hopefully only ring. <laughs> I wasn't searching. I looked a little bit, but I was like, we can go to JCPenney and get another one. Like, you know, it's not the same thing. So I think she definitely would have had that, like, that is a story that relates the most, I think, to just everyday life. You know, it's just like you find something that has such meaning to you, you know, and the, the coin didn't do anything wrong. You know, like the dumb sheep went off, the dumb son went off, but the coin, like, what did the coin do? You know, that I think is very relatable because it, it, it deletes this kind of judgment that we might have, especially about the son. And it can help us see just like you're saying, that that really beautiful and unending joy that happens. And do we have that same joy not only when we experience the love of God, but when we see it happen for other people? You know, I'm, th- I'm being reminded right now of, um, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but in the past week or so, um, Shia LaBeouf had this famous interview with Bishop Barron because he was recently in a movie about Padre Pio. He plays Padre Pio, and he had this profound conversion to Catholicism. And he... As an actor with a very storied past, very colorful past, and, you know, is not shy about talking about a lot of the sinful things that he was into and did. And I saw in social media and in different media outlets that were Catholic, a lot of, like, hesitancy. Like, oh, we'll see if this really lasts. Or, like, you know, maybe this is just a media stunt. He's like a method actor, and then we move to his next role. He's going to be something else. And it was just like, why don't we have that joy for other people as well? Like, where's the celebration? That, like, welcome home. You know, that one day now... Like maybe my kids or their kids, when they get confirmed, will be confirmed under the name Saint Shia LaBeouf. Like, wouldn't that be crazy? You know, like that's possible. And we should want that for everyone. Like, isn't that nuts that that could happen? Um, And so if you haven't heard that interview yet, it's on YouTube and it's on Bishop Barron's podcast. Really, really incredible um, interview about his story. So anyway, yeah. I thought there was another question over here. Roberto. And uh, upon his arrival home, 
calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. It makes me think a sense of community. Mm -hmm. You share in the good like you share. I remember when you said that uh, uh, sinners were required, they were required to uh, yell mm -hmm. the, the sin that they had uh, committed. Yeah, it was part of the act of repentance. Right. You would announce your sins on the steps so of the temple. This sense of, uh, this sense of uh, uh, sharing, yeah. the good and bad. Yeah. Is it wrong for me to... Uh, no, you're absolutely right. It was a very communal society. They would absolutely rejoice together. They would have celebrations together. When there was a wedding happening, the whole town shut down for a week. You know, wedding celebration was a week-long party. The whole town was there. The whole town was invited. These were little communities, not big cities that we have. And, and homes were maybe one room or one, one large room and an ante room for sleeping with no big walls, no locked doors, no like closing windows. Like everybody heard and knew and experienced everything as a community. And to us, that's, you know, partly, you know, cool and nostalgic, but mostly terrifying. I think when you really think about it, like, oh my gosh, you know, Eric and I grew up in a very small town and, you know, you, you can't go anywhere without seeing someone you know. And, you know, when we started dating, people were like, oh, my gosh, did you hear? You know, it was just like, it's like, it's the closest to a celebrity I think either of us will ever be. You know, it's only because we just like lived in a very small town, you know. Um, and so that's just the reality. But this was like every town was like that. You know, Nazareth, where, where Jesus grew up, was, they believe, a town of maybe only 200 people. You know, that's like around the size of my graduating class in high school. Like, to, and to know them your whole life. Like people weren't traveling around a lot. You know, they stayed generally within, you know, 50 miles of their home. And that was just to get to Jerusalem for pilgrimage feasts. But where they lived, you know, they didn't move around a lot. They planted roots. So absolutely, it, was been, it would be a very deeply entrenched community. And think then about also experiencing the baddest community, how not only the father, but all of his neighbors would have felt about his, his son selling that ancestral land for money to go and squander it in a distant country. That too would have, everyone in the community would have had an opinion about that. Everyone would have been ready for them to start quoting Deuteronomy 21 and be like, we've got our rocks, we're ready. This boy's back home, like let's teach him a lesson. You know, they would have had feelings about it for sure. And what does the father do? He gives him a ring, he gives him a robe, he gives him sandals on his feet. The ring, a signet ring is what people think it is. It has the seal of the family on it. It was a sign of, you were part of this family. Joseph is given one in Genesis 41, I think, by Pharaoh, because he gains favor with Pharaoh. He gives him a robe, uh, and robe is a very, this word for robe is stolen, is a very expensive garment. You know, they didn't have a lot of these. The ring, you're part of the family, and then sandals, giving him freedom to leave again. Giving him freedom to leave again. There's a famous spiritual, and one of the lines is, um, all God's children got shoes. That we all have, in God's eyes, we all have this freedom. He gives us freedom, but we can still choose to leave. And despite all that he did, being reconciled to his father and his father giving him all this love, his father still gives him permission. If you need to go again, you've got the shoes, you can leave. That's, you know, that's the love of a parent right there. You know, this probably relates to a lot of parents maybe in the room who have older children who maybe don't practice the faith or who don't get the faith or who are struggling with it, you know, or there are people in your family who that applies to. And that can be really difficult too. you know, having that feeling of wanting to see them coming back up over the hill, you know, metaphorically speaking and, and come back.
Other comments, questions? Yeah, Ellie. Jacob and Esau, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's a common trope in the Old Testament that the younger son, even though the older son is supposed to be the one who has the blessing and gets the inheritance, there's this common like turning upside down of family relations where the younger son gets a one up on the older son. So think very like all the way back to Adam and Eve, their first two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel is the younger one who finds favor with God and his older brother Cain kills him first murder in the Bible. And then you have um, Abraham. Abraham and Sarah can't have children, and Abraham and Sarah get impatient, so they have an older son. He has an older son with uh, her handmaid named Ishmael, but then they're blessed with a son named Isaac who's younger, and he's the one who gains favor. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau who are twins. Esau is born first. He's the older one, but Jacob is the one who ends up being favored, and this goes on and on and on. Joseph with his many brothers, he's not the oldest. He's the oldest of his father's favorite wife, of his beloved, um, but he's still the younger who supplants the older, and this happens over and over again. And I think it's to show that God chooses, like, Israel, the nation of Israel. They would not be seen as, like, the firstborn, like, the best, the most, you know, warrior-like, or the most, like, grand in empires. You know, like, nobody in history is, like, Okay, we're going to talk about the great ancient empires, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Egypt, and the Hebrews. Like, that doesn't really happen. Like, maybe it comes up with King David when they were really in their glory days. But, like, you know, Greeks, Romans, those were the superpowers. And yet the smaller, you know, I think it's all pointing to Jesus. Same with King David. King David was the youngest of his brothers. And he's the one through whom we have the, the, the line of the Messiah that points directly to Jesus. And Jesus, though he's an only child... He has this kind of unexpected, you know, package that God comes to earth in. You know, we, we would expect, you know, a big gallant warrior who is a, a king-like figure or, or a politician, and he's a humble carpenter, you know. So I think it's to show that um, the favor of God comes to us in a very upside-down way often. You know, we cannot predict God's love. All we can do is receive it. And that's very powerful, powerful. But when we think God is going to love us or intervene in a certain way that we have pre-planned or that we think is right, then that's when we get very frustrated. Like, God, like, I, I want you to do this. You know, if I, if I just pray the rosary every day, then will you do this for me? And God's love doesn't work like that. His plan doesn't work like that. So, yeah. Nick. Um, at this point in time, would you say the most... Not divided, but as far as the tribes of Israel, that they had basically kind of fallen because you have like yeah. the two tribes that were good, mm -hmm. and then you have this, the uh, Samaritans, right? The other ten tribes? Well, the other ten tribes were lost. They were lost. Yeah, the Samaritans were those who were left in the north but had intermarried with foreigners who had come in. So that timing that when Jesus came, it's like, you know, you have the Pharisees who were essentially oppressing. It seems like everybody's just kind of falling where you have their law was essentially failing them, right? Yeah. You have a bunch, essentially, of 10 tribes that have been ostracized. 
They're mm-hmm. like, they were lost, like utterly lost. Nobody had any idea. They were obliterated completely by war. They were taken into exile. So these 12 tribes of Israel that were named for the 12 sons uh, or 12, I guess, sons and grandsons of uh, Jacob um, all had different land holdings within Israel. And at certain point after King David reigned, this is all before Jesus, there was a big civil war between them. And they, some split north, 10 tribes went north, and they were completely obliterated by the Assyrians who were called like the Nazis of the Old Testament. They were like, did horrific things to them. And the two tribes that were left, Benjamin and Judah, they kind of maintain their ancestral line. And that's through whom we get Jesus. We get the, the line of the Messiah where you can trace. If you ever go up into the fireside room, which is up there, there's a big family tree on the wall tracing Jesus's lineage all the way back to Adam using the Bible. It's like fascinating. And it has, it's not just Jesus. It's like every other person they could fit on this chart. It's massive. You need a magnifying glass to read it. And it's still like four feet by six feet. It's huge. Um, but yeah, it was... This is what sin does, right? It destroys, it divides, it tears apart. And I think this is the message for us when we read this, that oftentimes we don't feel worthy of this type of love. Or we feel that this type of love comes with conditions. It comes with terms. It comes with, okay, I have to do this or do that. I have to, you know, fully, you know, uh, repent or be perfect. And it's like, no, like, even if you come back like a half-hearted son looking for food, God is still going to love you. There's this famous quote of Abraham Lincoln where someone asks him, after he won the Civil War, um, he's, he, they ask him, how are you going to treat the South now that they're back? And he said, I'm going to treat them as if they were never away. And that's how God loves. That's how God loves us, as if we had never been away. St. Catherine of Siena put it this way, that she said, God is pazzo d'amore, which means crazy in love. Crazy in love. Crazy in love with us. Like, I'm talking like if you had like world's textbook greatest stalker, like that type of love. Like God just wants to be all up in your business all the time. You know, just like he wants to know everything. And he does. He knows everything about you. Like just <laughs> the best, most comforting stalker. I don't know. That's a bad analogy. But you're like, that's how like obsessed God is with you, how much he delights in you, how much he loves you. And that's a hard thing to receive. And it's a hard thing, it's a harder thing to give to other people, especially people who test our patience, people who live out their faith differently, who have different opinions than us. That can be hard, really hard. And this chapter, this is why this is often called the gospel of the gospel, the heart of the gospels, the heart of Luke, because this is something we can constantly return to, to be reminded, like God will never stop pursuing us, never stop. And that's just a really beautiful and comforting thing to know. Any final question? We got time for maybe one more question or comment. I'm not convinced that the son was truly repentant. Me neither. He was hungry. Yeah, he was hungry. He had a passion Mm -hmm. because he was starving, so he had a passion to eat, Mm -hmm. and he rehearsed a line to lay on his father hoping it would work Mm -hmm. and and i don't think he conceived that he was dead Mm. that he was he was about to get stoned i don't think that entered his head all that drove him was his his passion to eat Mm -hmm. and uh the father having more love than the son 
could even imagine, forgave him, not because he asked, but because he loved him. Mm -hmm. And we have to be careful with our passions and our the way we try to excuse ourselves to God. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> and uh, um, I don't know, that's what struck me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, just a beautiful testament to God's love for us. The note that he ran. He ran out to meet his son. This guy had land. He had servants. It was very, very um, uncustomary for a wealthy person to run. That was something servants did. It would, have seen, it would have been seen as completely foolish and ridiculous to be running. And that's how God loves. Foolishly. That's what the word prodigal means. It means wasteful or foolish. And so people often comment that this shouldn't be called the parable of the prodigal son. It should be called the parable of the prodigal father who's foolish and wasteful in his love for us by human standards. That's what awaits us when we have a relationship with God, when we follow him. Despite what we do, despite the many times we turn away, that's what's always waiting for us anytime we come back home. So as we hear this proclaimed this Sunday, I hope it will inspire new reflections and thoughts in you. But just, I think, as we close to be reminded that, that God is crazy in love with you. Crazy in love with you. He delights in you. And he loves each one of us in a unique and unrepeatable way. I'm not saying this that God loves you collectively. I'm saying God loves you individually as if you were the only person on earth. He loves each one of us as if there were only one of us. That's what St. Augustine says. And he would have died on the cross for us if we were the only people left on earth. That's how much he loves you. And so no matter how far you feel from him, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much you can turn back to him and repent or how, how little, he can do something with it. He wants to. He delights in it. He's waiting. All he needs is our invitation. All he needs is for us to get up and go back home. So let's do that this week. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this evening together, for the gift of this word. So many other things that we couldn't get into, so many great details, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to allow this passage to unfold and to share wisdom with us, to share your word with us as we dive into it but throughout the course of this week, and especially when we hear it proclaimed this weekend, that it would strike us anew, resonate in our hearts in new ways, and help remind us of your foolish, unrelenting, wasteful love for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.